I'd like to know if there's anyone in the room who does not know who Larry Sabato is and a little bit about him. If so, raise your hand. All right, I saw one hand back there, so I'm going to go ahead and give the introduction. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd skip. <laughs> I, I first became aware of Larry. I had just graduated from high school, from, a, from law school, a few years before in 1969. And uh, Larry entered the university. By my calculation, it was about 1970. Was that about right? It was with the uh, first class of women. It was also the year of the uh, riots when uh, hundreds and hundreds of students were rounded up arrested, put in a Mayflower van line, kept there for four or five hours, and it led to some, obviously, uh, constitutional law challenges and all the rest because of all of the uh, uh, opposition to the Vietnam War and then the opposition to the opposition and back and forth. And uh, even alumni groups split right down the middle. <laughs> uh, that went on for some time. Larry, as he became an uh, upperclassman, was, well, throughout his a scholastic career, he was very active in uh, school politics and, and uh, school events. But I recall that he was president of the uh, student council there probably uh, his last year. And uh, his picture used to be uh, published fairly frequently in, uh, certainly in the Cavalier Daily, but also in the Daily Progress. By this time, I was a Gowney, uh, also on wanted posters and things like that. <laughs> so it was pretty, it was pretty obvious that uh, Larry was a gadfly, somewhat of a gadfly, even then. Uh, what wasn't so obvious was that he would make a professional career of it <laughs> and, uh, and do quite well <laughs> as a prognosticator uh, and now as a professor. Politics is a good thing, so Larry says, and that's his slogan. In uh, July of 2008, he correctly projected that Barack Obama would win the presidency in a near landslide. He predicted a 364 to 174 margin in the Electoral College, just one vote away from the final tally of 365-173. And he also forecast President Obama's exact 53% popular vote margin. That's pretty accurate. But he, make, he makes a career of being accurate. In addition, he, he accurately predicted 98% of Senate, House, and Governor winners in 2006, 2008, and 2010, by far the best in the business. In 2006, Larry was named the most accurate prognosticator by an unusual combination of news organizations, including Fox News, MSNBC, CNBC, and Pew's Project for Excellence in Journalism. At home, both in the classroom and the television studio, Larry bridges the gap between the ivory tower and the real world of politics. He's the author of 24 books and countless essays on politics, including the well-known Feeding Frenzy, A More Perfect Constitution, and The Year of Obama. His latest project is an upcoming book on the 2010 midterm elections entitled Pendulum Swing. And I asked Larry, and he gave me permission to, uh, to mention this as well, uh, some months ago, he issued a challenge grant to university friends and alumni uh, saying that he would match dollar for dollar uh, all contributions to the uh, Center for Political Studies. Uh, that's his uh, department, the department he founded. Uh, and uh, there's a, a maximum put on it for his safety, but, but, it's, but it's a very high maximum. <laughs> but Larry has, uh, has the reputation of being among the leaders, if not the uh, the person in first place among faculty of all time for his own personal contributions 
uh, to the university. That's the kind of person that he is, and it's a pleasure to introduce him and uh, to present him to you this morning. Larry. Jim, thank you very, very much. I appreciate that. And um, uh, now that you opened up the subject uh, of, uh, of gifts to the Center for Politics, now I understand that all of you have just accepted this pin from the Center for Politics. I think you all got one. If you didn't, raise your hands and, and raise your hand. Oh, we got some others here. I've got, got uh, Jeff and Tim and so on. Let's go. We want every person to get one of these. Now, by accepting the pen, you've agreed to give more than, more than $100 a year, and I mean it could be a lot more, but it's a minimum $100 a year. Now, how can I insist that that's true? Because we have the fine print in the pen. See, nobody, nobody ever looks at the fine print. They don't discover that until later, and we will sue you. We will sue you for the money. I've got former students who are collection agents, and, you know, they go out. I'm Italian. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with me. You've got a debt, you better pay it. And that's, that's the way it works. Okay, I think I've done enough promo on that uh, to go on. But anyway, I'm glad to see you all. Um, as always, I've done this for, God, I guess 20 years, I don't know, uh, for this particular group. And I'm always glad to, to see so many loyal alumni from the University of Virginia, and uh, just for you, my assistant back there, Tim Robinson, has worked in various anti-Virginia tech jokes um, into the presentation, so you can you can enjoy all that. Uh, I've got a terrific staff at the at the Center for Politics who are who uh, help me with all these predictions and do a great job. Uh, I see Jeff Skelly back there as a UVA graduate. Well, you know we have a preference. Obviously, it's probably illegal but I only hire UVA graduates unless there's a compelling reason. Otherwise, I, Reggie Jackson is out of UVA. I saw him here. Where is uh, Kyle Condit? He's the great exception. There's Kyle in the back. He's from Ohio, and I have to have a guy from Ohio, my friend from Canton, Ohio, because it's such, such a key swing state. So we made a great exception for Kyle. Uh, he's from Ohio University, and i got to admit the Bobcats did a lot better than we did. So uh, we give credit to the Bobcats and, and to Kyle for, for a great job along with uh, Jeff on the, on the crystal ball. Well, look, we got, a, we got a little election coming up. I don't know if you've noticed. There, there's always an election. Let's, let's be honest. I, I'm grateful for that. Keeps me busy. Uh, keeps me, well, in trouble rather than out of trouble. And you're absolutely right. Nothing's changed since the, the early 1970s or actually earlier than that. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people ask me, how do you come up with these predictions? And we have election models and we have all kinds of tools that we use and all the usual things like polling data. But we have some secrets. And this being family, you know, we're all University of Virginia people one way or another. Either you, you were uh, lucky enough to, to go here or you married in, you know, <laughs> one way or the other. You know, you're, you're connected. And we're, we're uh, you know, family, and I trust you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disclose something that I hardly ever disclose. The real way that we project elections is using this. I don't know. 
I hope all of you had that when you were younger because it's, it's a great little thing. And I know what you really want to hear, and I'm going to get to the conclusion first in case some of you have to leave early. Will, will Barack Obama be reelected? <laughs> Ask again later. <laughs> and that is the correct answer in May. That is the correct answer in May. There's no way, you know, all these people get on TV and project this and project that. Hey, take a coin out of your pocket and flip it. You got a 50-50 chance of being right, okay? Uh, that's what those predictions are worth. There's no way anybody could know because no one knows what the next few months of economic statistics are going to look like. No one knows what the international situation is going to look like. No one knows a lot of things that will directly affect the election. Now, I'm going to give you some suggestions about this, that, or the other, but I'm not going to make a precise prediction in May. We issue our predictions when the data permit us to do it, starting in midsummer uh, and going through uh, post Labor Day. By post Labor Day, you know whether somebody is clearly ahead or whether it's going to be, you know, a nail biter like 2000. And even, you know, then. I remember giving a presentation here one week before the 2000 election. We were over in Wilson Hall, and there was a packed house, and everybody just wanted to know one thing. And I got up and I said, uh, we've looked at everything that's available to us, and I think it's going to be too close to call, and it will all come down to Florida. And they booed me. <laughs> well, what? And the newspaper made a, made a big thing about the crystal ball was cracked. Well... <laughs> It was too close to call, and it all came down to Florida. I'm sorry. I had no idea whether those 537 votes were real or not. You know, you can only know what you know, and it's better to tell people what you don't know. So that's, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you what I know and tell you what I don't know. Whatever predictions I make today uh, will be written in a very special way, and I have the tool for it. And here it is. The... <laughs> Because whatever you say on an Etch-a-Sketch, it's just like Pravda used to be in the Soviet Union. You can erase it, and there's no history. It's not like a computer. They can dig your old emails out of, you know, the hard drive. But this, this is my preferred computer, the Etch-a-Sketch. By the way, I, I want to say the, the president of Ohio Art, which makes uh, Etch-a-Sketch, uh, is a big contributor to the Center for Politics, and that is why I promote Etch-a-Sketch wherever I go. Okay? He gives a heck of a lot more than $100 a year to those who were considering giving the absolute minimum. Okay, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the election. Uh, this, this be, I know this group pretty well. You, you skew heavily to the Republican Party. I don't, I'm sure that comes as a great shock to, uh, to those of you who know one another. Uh, your, your party, and I am completely independent, I usually vote for Thomas Jefferson. I plan to do that again this year. I, he's never disappointed me. I feel good about it. Uh, and I, I challenge most of you to really say you feel good when you come out of the polling places the way things have been going uh, with negative advertising and all that. But uh, I can tell you this, the Republican Party had the weakest lineup of candidates I can remember a major party having when you have a reasonable chance of winning the presidency. I mean, it is, it's really stunning who didn't run. 
you would think that anybody who wanted to be president or had a modicum of ambition would run in a year when you had a 50-50 chance of winning. But all of the big shots stayed out. You know, the, Chris Christie, the biggest of the big shots in lots of different ways. But he would have been fun. My God, I would have paid him to get in. Uh, is the incredible things he says all the time. There's a wonderful new video out, by the way. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. He and Cory Booker got together and played off one another uh, about uh, politics, and it's just hilarious. It was released last night. Uh, and there it is right now. Somebody's making – I hear the noise right here. That's, that's Governor Christie calling, and he's – and he's encouraging me to show it, but I'm not going to do it. Uh, so Chris Christie didn't run. Jeb Bush didn't run. Uh, uh, you know, so many of the of the major – Mitch Daniels from Indiana, governor of Indiana, I think he would have made an excellent nominee had he, had he run and gotten the nomination. Uh, he's a good example of what, what uh, you don't have today. You don't have people like that jumping in because they don't want their private lives examined proctoscopically. And that's what you have to endure. I think that's the right, that's the right word for this crowd. Uh, I'm there with you. Don't worry about it. I'm right there with you. Uh, but, you know, Mitch Daniels divorced years ago. He and his wife divorced, and the wife went out to California, and she married some other guy. And sure enough, it didn't work out. She divorced him. She moved back to Indiana and remarried Mitch Daniels. Hey, compared to Newt Gingrich, that's a love story. I mean, that could have sold politically. That, that would have sold. I think it would have been an excellent story. But, you know, they didn't, they just didn't. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying this so much, really. It, it means a lot to me at this, at this stage of my life. Okay, uh, so, you know, all these people didn't run, and I've forgotten half of them now because they, they'll all, Bobby Jindal didn't run, and Paul Ryan didn't run, and, and so on. All, these people we'll see in 2016 if Romney loses. They'll, they'll all be in there when it's an open presidency. I think they, they calculated that they didn't want to run against an incumbent, but you never know. You know, that's how Bill Clinton got to be president. All the other big-shot Democrats, Mario Cuomo and Dick Gephardt and, and – uh, Bill Bradley, none of them wanted to run. And Bill Clinton said, hey, I'll step up to the plate. You never can tell what might happen. And that's how he got to be president. That's how he got the nomination, virtually unopposed, really. There was nobody else strong running for the nomination. So you take your chances and you run when you can. It's always a mistake to overcalculate uh, when you're going to run for president. But in any event, the Republicans did. The logical thing, there was only one candidate in that field. Apologies to those of you who supported others. It's your right as an American to support a loser. But they would have lost badly. I mean, maybe you didn't care. Maybe you were supporting a principal of yours. That's great. But Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum and Herman Cain and, you know, on and on. I've, I have fortunately forgotten some of them. Uh, they were disasters. They would have produced Barry Goldwater's 38% of the vote. You know, if that's what you wanted, that's what you were going to get with those candidates. The Republicans figured out there was only one possible nominee who could compete in November. You may not be crazy about him. You may, you know, have doubts about this or doubts about that. Fine. But there's only one person who could raise the money, who could put the organization together, and who had the profile to compete with Barack Obama, and it was Mitt Romney. And that was perfectly obvious for months and months. We certainly said it at the crystal ball over and over. We gave him odds of 80-plus percent of being the nominee, 
The, the other 20% was in case the Republicans went insane. Uh, I mean, that's, that's all you can really say about it, because in the end, it's about winning, friends. I mean, you either win or you don't. Uh, and, and so you have to pick a winner to be able to do that. Now, as we line these two up, Obama and Romney, there are plenty of pluses and minuses for both of them. For, for uh, Obama, obviously just being the incumbent is, uh, is a big plus. The Air Force One tends to attract lots of money and spectators, and a, a challenger can't do that, flying in in a regular plane. Uh, the economy, we'll, we'll have to see. You know, I just, I, one day I think it's improving enough to reelect Obama, and other days I think it's doing poorly so that uh, Romney can win. And that's really, I'm, I've got a very econocentric uh, sense of elections. It's mainly about the economy, except when there's an unpopular war or a mega scandal. Those are the only two things that take people off the economy. And you say, no, wait a minute, I think of plenty of elections, like 1988 when we were talking about social issues and crime and this and that and the other. Yeah, but the reason George H.W. Bush won is because there was peace and prosperity. They got Ronald Reagan's third term. It's the underlying factor that drives votes. That's the economy. The other things are sideshows, again, unless there's a very unpopular war or a mega scandal like Watergate. Uh, that, that really drives uh, millions of votes. So uh, the economy, it's right there in the gray area in the middle. It's limping along. It's gradually improving. It reminds me a lot of the economy in 92 when Bush Sr. ran for re-election. It was improving, but it wasn't improving enough so that people felt it, and then it came down to the skill of the candidates and the campaign teams, and there was no contest at all. Bush was never able to sell people on the fact that there had been a recovery going for an, a year and a half prior to the election. He couldn't sell it. And Clinton sold the idea that things were miserable and awful and terrible, and, uh, and it worked. And that's how he won in 1992. So this is going to come down partly to the skill of the candidates and, the, and their teams in selling either uh, the idea that the economy is improving and that the next four years will be better than the last four, or that nothing's really changed that if you didn't like the last four, then you shouldn't vote for another four. That's the contest that exists in what is both a referendum on Barack Obama and a choice between these two candidates. Uh, you know, Obama's going to talk a lot about bin Laden and foreign policy. Hey, he should. You know, presidents get credit for everything good that happens on their watch, and they get the blame for everything bad that happens on their watch. Those are the rules. Those are the rules. So it's perfectly okay. He's going to do it. Any president would do that. Now, he's got a couple of hidden advantages that people don't focus on. The first is he had no renomination challenge. In modern American history, stretching back through the 20th century, uh, no president who has been unopposed for renomination, has had no serious opponent for renomination, has lost reelection. It's the ones who are opposed for renomination that lose. Ford opposed by Reagan, you know, Bush opposed by by uh, Pat Buchanan, a Carter opposed by Teddy Kennedy, because it divides the base, it wastes lots of money, it causes tensions, and so on. So that's a big plus. The other big plus, nobody thinks about, but it's absolutely true. Go through the 20th century and this piece of the 21st, and you'll see that only one time did a party control the White House for just four years, just one term, Jimmy Carter. That's it. In every other case, when an incumbent lost, you know, Taft and Hoover and all the rest, 
the party controlled the White House for two, three, four plus terms. See, there's, there's a natural inclination to have a majority coalition deteriorate, for people to yearn for change over time. But four years, that's a short period of time. It gives an incumbent the chance to say, hey, I am the change. I just got in. You don't want to go back to what you had just four years ago. Hi, George W. Bush. You know, that's where, that's where he comes into it. Uh, and it, it can work. Again, depends on the skill of the candidate and the campaign teams. Now, there are, are plenty of minuses for Obama. He's a polarizing president, third one in a row, Clinton, Bush, and now Obama. Is it because they're polarizing that we are so polarized? Partly, but it's partly also us. It's the way we view politics. It's our times. It's these divisive social issues. There are loads of reasons why we have such deep polarization. Polarization, as I was talking about this morning, uh, produces an electorate with 2 or 3% undecided. Some of the polls have it down to 2 or 3% undecided because most people already know for whom they're going to vote. That's often true when an incumbent is involved, and it's particularly true in polarized times. Um, we'll see what happens with the economy. To me, it seems like a yo-yo economy. It's incredible, isn't it, that it could come down to luck as to whether we're moving up on the roller coaster in September and October or moving down on the roller coaster in September and October. And nobody controls it. Nobody. The Federal Reserve doesn't control it. They try, but they don't. It's, it's bigger than anybody in any institution. So you just don't know. You have to sit there and watch and see what, what actually happens. And there, you know, there are other minuses. I thought, I thought the fact that Michelle Obama gave the commencement address at Virginia Tech was a giant negative. <laughs> that, that, that will subtract loads of votes. It doesn't show any taste. All right, that's your first one, Tim. I don't know. Yeah, that was moderate laughter. It's moderate. We'll see how it compares to the others. Uh, okay, now Romney, uh, this is what's interesting. The, the, the Republican base, they're, they're, they're a piece of work, to be quite honest about it. So is the Democratic base, but they, I didn't see them much this year because there was no contest. But, you know, they're, they've got their list. The activists have their list of, of subjects and topics, and, you know, they make people check off the list and everybody's got to be perfect on everything and I've never listened to more whining about a candidate than I listened to concerning Mitt Romney. I mean the guy couldn't put his socks on right you know for some of these people. But he actually has a good profile for November. In a year when the economy clearly is dominating and it's going to continue to dominate. It's going to continue to dominate no matter how much people talk about gay marriage or Something that happens abroad. This is an election about the economy. It's obvious to everybody. And we're going to get back on that track. Every time we get off the track, we're going to get right back on that track. And there you have a guy with a business background. And he has successes and failures. And the Democrats are going to point up Bain Capital. And he's going to point up the successes and the Olympics and so on. But he's got a record, a track record in business that he can sell. I understand the economy. I've worked in the private sector, unlike Barack Obama. I know uh, how to fix this economy, whether he does or doesn't. Most people have no clue how a $14 trillion economy works, and they're going to go, well, yeah, okay, he's got some, he's, he's worth $250 million. He must have done something right, you know. So that's what they're going to say, and that fits the electorate. 
he also has state experience rather than federal experience. He's not responsible for anything that's happened in Washington, D.C. He wanted to be responsible. He ran against Ted Kennedy. He was lucky he lost that Senate race. He's only had gubernatorial experience. So that's a plus in this particular year. Uh, just like Obama, he has a very solid organization. And here's the surprise. Uh, I think when you add up the super PACs surrounding Romney, in addition to what Romney's going to raise, they're going to actually about equal what the Democrats are spending, what President Obama spent. Remember, he outspent McCain more than two to one in 2008. Not this year. It's not 2008 anymore. That's something I keep saying. It's not 2008 anymore. In so many ways, things have changed. And the money situation proves it. And by the way, that's a principle of American politics. Mobilization begets counter-mobilization. It's been true throughout our history. That is one of the great things about a two-party system. It encourages counter-mobilization. When one side does well, the other side learns from their mistakes, and they tend to do well moving into the future. So it's a self-restoring system. Healthcare, we'll see what happens. It's being exaggerated, just like gay marriage. It is not going to be the alpha and the omega of this election, no matter what the Supreme Court rules in June. And I cannot read the mind of Anthony Kennedy. Have no clue what, what he's going to do. I don't know what he's going to have for breakfast that morning. So we'll all find out together. But, and it will enrage one side and please another, unless it's one of those classic Supreme Court muddles where it'll take the legal scholars six months to figure out what the heck they've said. I, I don't know. I don't know what they're going to say, but I do know this. The votes are already there, pro and con, on health care. It's factored into the vote that you see, the very close vote, and it is going to be a close competitive election. It's already factored in. Whatever they say, yes, there will be a tremendous uproar in a, for a month, okay? And then we'll move right back to the central question of the election about the economy. Uh, really, for Romney, Romney is so lucky to be running now rather than in 2008. He was lucky he lost that nomination because Barack Obama in 2008, given the unpopularity of the Iraq War, the unpopularity of George W. Bush, and the economic collapse, it was the easiest thing in the world to be the Democratic nominee. Hillary Clinton would have won. Any major Democrat would have won in 2008. Well, Things have changed. In 2008, Barack Obama was tabula rasa. He was a blank slate. Everybody wrote on the slate exactly what they wanted. Hope and change, hope and change, hope and change. Hope for what? You fill it in. What kind of change? You fill it in. And everybody said, yeah, this is good. This is, this is going to be good. And then, and then, you know, they didn't get what they'd hoped for. It's like being disappointed at Christmas, you know, when you were growing up. It was, it was really upsetting. You know, when your parents probably remember those, that when you threw, you got the clothes and you expected, a, you expected an Etch-a-Sketch. See, every time I mention Etch-a-Sketch, the contribution goes up. So I hope you all got an Etch-a-Sketch for Christmas. Uh, but he's running now when Barack Obama's governed for four years. It's a totally different situation. And because Obama is polarizing, Romney's 48% is automatically created for him just because he's on the ballot. He gets the 48%. I've rarely seen a consolidation of the uh, other party, uh, the out-of-power parties vote the way I've seen this, this session. Look at how much negative stuff was said about Mitt Romney during the primaries. Would you believe that it's, the contest has been over just for a few weeks? He's already at 90%. 90% of Republicans are going to vote for Mitt Romney at this level. It could go higher than that by November. 
They didn't consolidate because they love Mitt Romney. They consolidated because they hate Barack Obama. So he, Barack Obama has consolidated the 48% that Mitt Romney has. Now, can he get the extra 2 or 3% that he needs? We'll, we'll all find out together. Now, Romney has plenty of problems, too. He has a robotic persona. I don't think there's any question, although I, th I think Obama is... Uh, is, is cool hand Luke, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a coldness to both of them, frankly. Uh, I thought maybe together they could provide a solution, political solution to global warming. Yeah, they can, but, but I find them both, I find them both kind of frosty myself. I mean, they're, they are not the people that I would want to be stranded on a desert island with, to be, to be perfectly honest, you know. Bill Clinton, maybe. Well, there'd have to be somebody else there to keep him happy. But, but, I, but Bill Clinton would be fun, you know, when he wasn't otherwise occupied. Um, you all are just laughing. I'm hardly saying anything. You know, I'm, I, didn't, I didn't spell that out. Be careful when you quote me. I didn't spell that out. Now, you know, there's no question Romney's a champion flip-flopper, all right? All politicians flip-flop. They do it for a living because they read polls every day and their advisors say, no, you can't say that, you can't do that, you know, people don't like this. And so they modify what they've said and done and they forget, you know, what they did 10 years ago and all the rest of it. And as I say, they all do it. Uh, but he's, he's really got a record of it. And it's because he ran in Massachusetts for the U.S. Senate and then for governor. And you cannot be a credible candidate in Massachusetts and be conservative on social issues. Just doesn't happen. Well, when he ran for the Republican nomination, he had to reverse all those social issue positions. But the problem is videotape. It lasts forever. And so it's going to be there for him, and that should be a problem. Mormonism, I, I keep going back and forth about how much of a problem uh, it's really going to be. Jeff back there did a, did a piece on Mormonism. Uh, you know, we all think of John F. Kennedy and Catholicism. The difference is in 1960, you had close to a quarter of the electorate being Catholic. That's a heck of a base, and Kennedy got 80% of it, which was he needed every, every vote in there to get elected, but he got 80% of it. The problem for Romney is Mormons are 2% instead of, a, instead of 25% or 23%. They're 2%. So you can get 95% of the Mormons, but it really doesn't help you all that much electorally, and there's no question that many evangelicals do not like Mormons. I've had plenty of comments made to me personally about that. People will come up to you and start telling you about these doctrinal disputes that I really don't care about, but I've listened, uh, and they're very severe. Um, but in any event, it, it's a problem, though I think in the end they will vote for him. And even if they don't, they're concentrated in states for the most part. Maybe Iowa's an exception, but for the most part, they're concentrated in states where a Republican would win 60-plus percent anyway. So maybe Romney gets 58 percent. He still gets 100 percent of the electors, electors from that particular state. So I don't really think that it makes, that it makes all that much of a difference. So, again, we're, we're going to follow the, the economy and, and see what happens there. Uh, there also could be October surprises of, of various varieties. You never know what's going to happen with Iran, and you never know what the public reaction would be to a military confrontation with Iran probably started through Israel, and then we'd provide the air cover, and, of course, we'd be blamed every bit as much as Israel, if not more. Uh, it would dramatically increase gas prices, but would we feel that before November? It depends on 
when this began, if in fact it does begin, we hope it doesn't, before November. We hope it doesn't for lots of different reasons. But you just, you never know about that. You mentioned the economy, you never know about that. You never know about scandal, you know. Scandals have to directly affect the candidate. It can't be, the GSA is interesting and, and typical in some respects, but it does not get to the heart of anything. It simply reinforces uh, Republican votes against Obama. It's just red meat for the base, the Secret Service. I mean, and I have to be careful there. I've, I've had students go to the Secret Service. They've done a terrific job. I've always admired, I know a lot of the, the, the key Secret Service people run into them one place or another. I admire the way they, they wrestle presidential attackers to the ground, and now I see where they got their wrestling practice. Um, <laughs> But it doesn't affect presidential politics. Nobody's going to vote against Barack Obama because of what happened in Colombia, you know, with the prostitutes and so on. Um, we, we've gotten, I guess we've gotten our money's worth in a sense, all the enjoyment and the jokes out of the whole thing. You know, there, there are unexpected surprises. There are expected surprises and unexpected surprises. You know, for all we know, the, the, um, the, the black curtains around the rotunda columns could finally come down in October. I mean, that might affect something. I thought I'd mention that because I'm tired of looking at them. Uh, but I don't think that'll have much effect on the, on the election. There, it all comes down to this. Is Barack Obama the next Jimmy Carter, the most unlucky president since Herbert Hoover, at least? Or is he the next Bill Clinton? His two Democratic predecessors, Bill Clinton, Sonny Bill, very lucky. You know, unlike Carter, who had two recessions in the second half of the term, Bill gets his bad economy over in the first half of his, of his first term, right? So that he can say, look, it's my policies, even though it was really the election of a Republican Congress that caused him to compromise on, on the budget deficit and crime and welfare and all these things that he then touted to prove he was a new Democrat in, in 1996. Uh, but that's good politics. That's the, the mark of a skilled politician. Clinton even timed to sex scandals for non-election years. Uh, that takes takes skill and luck, I think, to to be able to do that. And you know, Carter, everything went wrong. So you know, which is it? And uh, you know, I'm not sure. I think he's right in between. I can see him going either way. There are elements of Barack Obama that remind me tremendously of Jimmy Carter, and and yet there are also the elements of luck. Uh, that remind me of Bill Clinton, and a lot of it is just plain dumb luck. Um, anybody who's been around politics long enough knows that that's the case. You always bet on incumbent presidents because over a period of time, you will win more money than you lose. Since popular elections started in 1824, two-thirds of all the incumbent presidents who sought another term have, in fact, won another term. All right? Now, half of them have one in landslides, this absolutely will not be a landslide. It's going to be a close competitive election. Uh, the other half have won narrow victories like Bush in 2004, 51-47, 60,000 votes in Ohio, a uh, very close election there. Uh, but you, you bet on the incumbent president. Now, having said that, presidents are actually the easiest public officials to defeat. Senators have a better than 80% re-election rate. U.S. House members since World War II, 93% of them who seek another term win another term. So this is the lowest percentage of, for elected officials. So you, you figure it out.
from there. It's, you know, you give an edge to an incumbent, but you don't give a very big edge. I still say it all comes down to uh, Barack Obama's changed slogan, which was hope and change, and now is hope for a change in the economy. People have to believe the economy is truly improving and that it isn't going to be yo-yo. They aren't going to be back in the soup right after the election. People always have a suspicion, sometimes well-founded, that things are done in election campaigns, the mirrors are adjusted, and the blue smoke is pumped so that things look better than they really are. They're suspicious about that. I think as you get older, you get even more suspicious because you realize how often there are conspiracies of one sort or another. Uh, so you have to remember that about the American electorate. We, we all uh, are, are from Missouri, in a sense. It's a show-me kind of environment in, in the political season. It's the only chance we have to hold them accountable. We know very well once they're in, they do what they want to do until they face election again, and second-term presidents never do. Now, briefly on, on Congress and my House editor back there, Kyle Condit, you correct me if I say anything wrong, but I won't because these are your notes. Um, but uh, the Republicans, you know, 49-seat edge, meaning Democrats have to get, uh, gain 25 seats, but they're not going to gain 25 seats because they actually have to gain more than that thanks to redistrictings, probably low 30s. Uh, and, and it's not going to happen because you don't have that many competitive seats. Uh, out of the 435, I'll be surprised by November if we have 60 to 70 real races. Today you'd say 80 to 90. By then it'll be 60 to 70. There, there will be Democratic seats in the 60 to 70. There will be Republican seats in the 60 to 70. How, how do you get uh, 30, 33 additional seats out of 60 to 70 real races? And the answer is you don't. There, there's no way. You can gain seats. I think Democrats will add a few probably to their total. The Republican margin in the House will be somewhat reduced, but they aren't going to come close to getting those 25 seats. Kyle's current count on our crystal ball website is that the Republicans already have safe, likely, or leaning 233 House seats. 218 is a majority, so they're already over the majority. They're at 233, and the Democrats have 188, and there are 14 toss-ups. That's really sad, isn't it? In May, in the entire country, we find 14 toss-ups out of 435. That is the degree of competition, thanks to the politicians who have done a, they've done a lousy job at almost everything else. There's a reason why they're at 13%, Congress is, approval level, and we're at 9%. 13% really is their family and immediate friends, you know, <laughs> on their, their Vonage cell phone circle. You know, that's it. Uh, they've, done a, they've done a lousy job at everything but drawing their districts. They're really, really good at that because it's, it's so important that we eliminate the old system about, you know, the people selecting the representatives. Now we have the right way. The representatives pick their voters. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. It's so much more orderly, don't you think? So they're all going to get reelected, and I know you're thrilled about that. What about the Senate? It's really close, which, which tells you in the end, whether it's 51-49, one way or the other, or 50-50, uh, the Senate specializes in talk and gridlock anyway. Well, that's what you're going to get, talk and gridlock. Nobody's going to get anything done with a 51-49 majority or 50-50 with a tie broken by the vice president. And it's going to be close like that. Maybe it'll go to 52-48. But it's, it's so close, nothing's going to be done, particularly. 
And uh, that's what you can expect. And the Democrats, you know, picked up a seat in Maine, and the Republicans have picked up probably North Dakota and I think Nebraska, particularly after the primary last night, which nominated Deb Fisher. She's well positioned to, to take that uh, seat from the Democrats. Uh, you know, Montana, Nevada, and Missouri, and Wisconsin, and Virginia, and Massachusetts, and Florida, you can argue, Ohio, you can argue them forever. But I think it's going to come down to just a seat or two one way or the other. And uh, that is a hint of what's to come, particularly if Obama's reelected. He's going to have a Republican House and a deadlock Senate. So he'll be a foreign policy president, relying on vetoes, appointments, and administrative and executive orders. And that's it. That's what second-term presidents frequently rely on when they have a Congress in whole or in part controlled by the opposition party. If Romney wins, I think, he, I think the Republicans will get the Senate by a seat or two, 51, 52 seats. Uh, the House will be just a little under where it is now for Republicans. He'll have a short honeymoon. They'll get rid of parts of Obamacare. Uh, I don't know what the heck they'll do on taxes and the debt and everything else because it's a giant mess. I hate to think about real issues. See, I stay with politics. <laughs> I don't want to talk about the $15 trillion national debt or the $25 trillion national debt we'll have in nine years if nothing is done because really, at our age, we don't need to worry about it. That's the way I look at it. Really, don't you think? I mean, some of you have grandkids. Look, that's their problem. You've given them a lot. You've given them a lot. You'll probably leave them something. Okay, it may go to the government, but you, you're going to leave them something. So relax. Everything is fine. You know I'm kidding. I don't really believe that. Uh, vice President. Everybody wants to know about the Vice President. and So many people come up to me on the Democratic side and say, can't we get Hillary Clinton to replace the gaffe machine? Uh, and I'm all for it. I think she'd make a much better Vice presidential candidate, probably a much better vice president, again, if she could control Bill. Tough dog to keep on the porch. Uh, that would be... <laughs> I, I keep joking about him because I, you keep laughing, and I say, well, you know, I've, I've figured this audience out, so I'm just going to keep coming up with the Bill Clinton jokes to make you happy. Uh, she would be a stronger candidate. Why? Because she appeals in the very places where Obama has trouble, places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, the places she carried two to one over him in the primaries. That's what he needs. He bring, needs to bring back some of those white working class Democratic voters. Well, she's not going to get it because in the modern era, you just don't drop a vice presidential candidate. It's more trouble than it's worth. The, the press would question it endlessly. It would go on forever. And uh, you actually have to have the acquiescence of the incumbent vice president to step aside. He has to agree to suffer in silence. Suffer in silence? <laughs> Joe Biden? So that's the end of that. Now, who will Romney pick? Months ago, months ago, the crystal ball picked Rob Portman as our number one choice in our top tier. We have 23 candidates in four tiers. Our number one choice, Senator Rob Portman from, from Ohio. I know my friend here from Ohio agrees. And yes, partly it was Kyle. He insisted that we, that we pick somebody from Ohio. But why Rob Portman? My guess is the vast majority of you haven't heard of him. And that's it exactly. <laughs> he is the polar opposite of her. Oh, come on. You know who her is. Four years ago, you haven't forgotten that. 
That's the key. You want to pick somebody who immediately passes the test of can this person be president on day one if a disaster occurs. She, there's no way she could pass that test. Sorry. I know she saw Russia from her porch, okay? <laughs> she was a disaster. And if you don't accept that by now, you never will. She was a disaster. She hurt McCain. She's been a disaster for the Republican Party ever since. She's still meddling here, there, and everywhere, uh, resigning her own governorship. I'm not getting back into it, but I'll tell you this. Rob Portman, trade rep, U.S. trade rep, brings foreign policy in, uh, budget director, federal budget director, uh, very good member of the House, now a member of the Senate, respected by both sides of the aisle, considered very, very competent, He's deeply conservative, very competent. Uh, he checks all the boxes, and he's one of the few people that I can find in the country who will not overshadow Mitt Romney. That, that, that's important. Chris Christie, come on. I mean, he'd, he'd, be in the, he'd be in the headlines every other day. I mean, you'd forget who was running for president. So... He fits well. And their theory of this election is it is Barack Obama or someone else. The someone else on the ballot is Mitt Romney. The lower the profile you keep while presenting an alternative, the lower the profile, the better the chance of winning. They want to keep it on track to be a referendum about Barack Obama. They don't want it to turn into a choice. So Portman fits that theory perfectly. Perfectly. Plus, he really would. If you don't think he's qualified, you don't think anybody's qualified. I mean, he has, he has done all the things that you should do to be prepared, if anybody really can be prepared, to be uh, president. Now, you know, some of you will, uh, will argue for Marco Rubio. Fine. I understand the Hispanic argument, though. I don't know that a Cuban-American really has that much influence on a Mexican-American or a Guatemalan-American or whatever. Uh, 29 electoral votes in, in Florida would be very nice for Romney, no question about it, if he can deliver. He's only been in the Senate a year and a half. He's a, you know, there, you've got the novelty again. You've got the potential for vetting to, to uncover certain things that may be a problem. Uh, Bobby Jindal's getting a lot of uh, talk now. It's possible. Although Louisiana is an automatic red state. You don't gain anything in electoral terms, but you would get a competent vice president. Paul Ryan, too controversial. You know, run for president. Uh, you bring all that budget stuff in, and people are going to start screaming and yelling about Social Security and Medicare. It's a big risk to do something like that. Uh, Jeb Bush doesn't want to run. He's going to run for president at some point. Uh, you have other, uh, and this is their term, not mine. This is the Romney campaign's internal term. You have other boring white guys available besides <laughs> Rob Portman. Okay, that's what they say privately. They're looking for a boring white guy. Uh, and there, there are loads of them in the Republican Party. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorites is Tim Pawlenty. We just had him down here. He ran for president. He didn't do particularly well. He actually has a great sense of humor. I've mentioned this before to this group. I remember seeing him at the Republican convention uh, four years ago, and he was number two on McCain's list, uh, after, really after Lieberman. He wanted Lieberman to be VP, and, and he really he was sold on Palin. But the guy who was in position to get it was Tim Pawlenty, and he lost out to Palin, and he pulled me over, and he said, I was one chromosome away from being vice president. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, we've got Bob McDonald. problem with Bob McDonald here in our state is he's not boring anymore because of transvaginal ultrasounds. And, you know, if you want to have two or three 
weeks of discussion about social issues, just pick Bob McDonald. I mean, and he knows it. Believe me, they, they understand the situation. And there, look, there are tons of people. I'm not going to, we've got them on our website. People always say, oh, what about Condoleezza Rice? She'd be great. Here's the problem. She's pro-choice on abortion. You want to blow up the Republican convention? Pick Condoleezza Rice. I mean, literally, you would have a walkout of a third plus of the delegates. How'd you like to start the general election that way? There are certain realities that you cannot avoid in politics. That's just the way it is. You may like it. You may dislike it. That's reality in politics. There, there are other people, people we're not even thinking about. We found a great one at the Crystal Ball. This guy, he's a Washington outsider, which is really in. He's beloved by conservatives. You've got to have that in the Republican Party. He's as telegenic as you get. He's already famous. You wouldn't have to spend a lot of money to get people to know him. He, he brings youthful fervor to the ticket. They, Republicans need to appeal to young people to a much greater degree than they are now. And he's from a key swing state, Florida. Uh, the problem is Tim Tebow's too young. <laughs> the electoral map as we see it right now, you've got 247 electoral votes for Obama, solid or leaning. Some are shaky. If the economy slips back because of Europe's recession and other things that are going on, just look to Wisconsin, Michigan, where Romney has roots, and Pennsylvania. If the campaigns are putting the candidates in there in the fall and airing a lot of ads in those three states, that will give you a strong hint as to which way things are going. Now, that's in the 247. And, you know, Pennsylvania has 20, and Michigan has 16, and Wisconsin has 10. A Democrat really can't win without those three states. So they're all critical to Obama's future, and he has, he has weaknesses in all three of them, though I have to say right now they're leaning to him slightly. Uh, Romney's 206 are solid. I don't, Arizona, the Obama people talk about, I don't see it happening at all. I also take North Carolina and Indiana away from Obama. He carried both of those last time. I think both of them will go to Romney this year. Missouri was tight as a tick. Narrowly, you know, 10,000 votes for McCain. This time it's going to go heavily for Romney. So those are three states right there that I think you automatically put in the Republican column. And there are seven swing states. They're super swing states. They're going to determine the election. They have 85 electoral votes. You have them in every region of the country. It's where the election mainly will be fought. Out west, Nevada and Colorado. In the Midwest, Iowa and Ohio. In the Northeast, just little New Hampshire. It's the only competitive part of the Northeast anymore. In the Mid-Atlantic, of course, Virginia. Who can believe Virginia is a swing state? But it is. It's really close here. And Florida. And those are the states that will determine the election. The good news, if you live in those states, is you're going to be in the center of the universe. You're going to be in the middle of everything. The bad news is you're going to see every negative ad produced about a thousand times. And if you don't live there, consider yourself lucky because you won't see the heavily, heavily negative campaign. Well, I always tell people, and it's early, it's May, things can change, and he who lives by the crystal ball ends up eating ground glass. So I'm going to stop here. I always save a lot of time for your questions because you're assertive. This is a very assertive group of Wahoos and Wahoo-related people. So I'm, I'm going to spend the rest of the time taking your questions. What have you got for me? Yes, ma'am. Thank you.
My question to you is what would you say about is the influence or the impact of excessive negative campaigning? I was particularly appalled personally by an ad I saw. It was put on by whatever is Women for Obama, and it was so dreadful about Ann Romney that I know nothing really much about her, but I would have voted for the next day because of this ad. So that just being an example, is there any kind of counter or resistance to that that impacts the election outcome? All right. A lot of people ask about negative advertising, and, you know, it's used because it works. It really does work, and it's human nature. Now, I'm going to ask you an honest question. You may be the exception, but most of you in this room, being honest, and we have the honor system, so I know you'll be honest. Uh, <laughs> Do you, when you're talking to family and friends, uh, do you like to focus on all the good news or do you sit around gossiping about the bad things that have happened? I won't mention any particulars, you know, who's sleeping with whom and that kind of thing. Come on now. Now, you know very well the way conversations go. And studies of this have shown that people remember and respond to negative information much more strongly, powerfully, and for a longer period of time than they do positive information. It is human nature. So that's part of it. That's part of it. Uh, second, you can't get rid of it because both sides do it. So who are you going to blame? You, say, you can't say, well, it's just my side that's clean. No, no, they're both dirty. Uh, the, uh, my guess is 80 to 90% of the ads aired this year will be negative. The one study I've seen of Florida, in the Florida Republican primary, 86% of the ads aired were negative. There was only one positive ad aired. It was, a, it was an ad in Spanish for Mitt Romney. That was it. It was the only positive ad aired in Florida. So there's no way to get rid of them. Uh, it does feed cynicism about politics. It feeds people's worst impressions about politics. I regret that. But I will tell you this, it does not depress turnout. In fact, there are studies that show negative advertising increases turnout because people get agitated. Their adrenaline pumps. They're even more likely to go vote. So, you know, there are positive effects, there are negative effects, and part of it does come down to the fact that people don't like politics. You know, they don't like politics. They don't believe politics is a good thing. They're wrong. It is a good thing. I don't say politicians are. I'd have to include too many people that I couldn't sell. But politics as an institution, as a system, as a process is a good thing. Uh, but people don't believe that. They hate politics. They hate politics. So they're inclined to believe the worst about anybody who's involved in it. So I have no hope at all for you there. None whatsoever. <laughs> Not, now, fortunately, there are loads of new antidepressants. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go back and forth. You're going to pick. You just pick somebody and give a, who's got the mic? What about the women's vote? What about the women's vote? Well, you know, women, since women are 53% of the uh, voting eligible population, they're a very diverse group. So it's hard to overgeneralize about the women's vote. But if there's, I wish I could find somebody in the room who wanted to bet me that men and women wouldn't pick different candidates because I would, I would like to take that bet. The, the proceeds would go to the Center for Politics uh, because I'm telling you, Mitt Romney will get a majority of men and Barack Obama will get a majority of women. Now remember, 
You'd always want a majority, if it's the same percentage, you'd pick women, of course, because they're a majority of the electorate. You know, if you have 53% uh, of men voting for you and the other side has 53% of women voting for them, the women's vote wins it because they're a larger vote. But it never turns out that way. We've had a gender gap, the so-called gender gap, which is two-sided. Men vote more Republican, women vote more Democratic. Since 1980, we haven't missed an election. We haven't missed a presidential. We haven't missed a midterm without uh, a gender gap. Why? A lot of it's economic. Women tend to be poor on the socioeconomic scale. They make less. Uh, many of them are uh, single mothers raising families. Uh, they are uh, widowed. They are divorced, etc. Uh, so economics is at the heart of it, but there are other dimensions. Women tend to be more pacific than men. Men tend to, you know, cheer the wars and women deplore them. That is frequently the case, and you all know that from your personal lives. Uh, social issues, they tend to be more liberal on those, on those key social issues, abortion, gay rights, and the other things. Environment, they tend to be much more pro-environmental than men do. So it's, it's just fundamental. This, here, I'm going to summarize it for you, and probably it's the first time you've ever heard anybody say this. I want you to remember it. Men and women are very different. <laughs> this is, that's what a university education is all about, trying to introduce people to new concepts that they've never considered before. She's yes. going to pick. She's picking. The, you, have to, you have to pick her, give her some money, do whatever you need to do. Yes, sir. Could you talk a little bit about super PACs and what you're – uh, where, where do you see them going? Away? No, I do not see them going away. They're going to increase in number tremendously. They're going to be used not just for presidential elections. You're going to have super PACs established for individual U.S. House races. We've already started. Why? Because you can give an unlimited amount of money of any sort, individual, corporation, union, if it's a certain type of super PAC, they know how to, the lawyers know how to do it. Uh, and you can hide your identity. You can give through an intermediary group, Americans for America. And that's the only thing listed on the campaign disclosure form. Well, who are Americans for America? Probably, I hope all of us are. Uh, but somebody gave, you know, $10 million, and you can't find out unless they boast about it, and some of them do. Uh, so this is a, a very disturbing development uh, look, I'm not in favor of most of the campaign finance regulation because it doesn't work. It just doesn't work uh, for lots of reasons, mostly related to the First Amendment. But what I am in favor of in the Internet age, and I can't imagine anybody arguing with this, 100% disclosure instantaneously uh, within 24 hours. There is no reason in the world why we couldn't have instantaneous disclosure by everything and everybody spending in the political system. And in the end, it's up to the press and public to evaluate where the money's coming from and where it's going and why. And then we factor that into our vote. Nobody's going to help us in any other respect. There is no way to stop the flow of money in a democracy. It just cuts the channel around the dam you've placed in front of it. That's part of the cost of the First Amendment, or maybe it's one of the glories of the First Amendment, depending on your point of view, but it's there. It's a reality. You have to accept it. But the super PAC disturbs me because it's hidden money. Hidden money is dangerous money. Sunshine is the best disinfectant, maybe the only disinfectant outside the legal system in politics.
That didn't even involve Bill Clinton. Thank you. Moving into the technology of voting. Has Where are there, you? I can't see you. Uh, down here under this hat. Oh, there you are. Hat. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> moving to the technology of voting, has there been any study as to the probable accuracy of the vote being recorded, being acknowledged, once we leave the polling booth? Yes, there have been many studies of it, especially after the 2000 election. Despite continuing suspicions, there is no giant conspiracy to steal votes through the companies that make the voting machines. In fact, I would argue, and there's plenty of evidence to support my argument, that voting today is far more highly accurate in tallying than it, than it ever has been before. You know, when you use paper ballots, first of all, they are subject to the, the, great, the greatest threat of fraud. And second, just the tallying errors. Look what happened in Iowa, in the Iowa caucus compared to other states that had more advanced forms of voting. It, apologies to those from Iowa, but you really screwed it up this year. There with the, you know, we didn't know who won. Yes, it was a very close race, but it went on for weeks. And, you know, did Romney win? Did Sam Torum win? It, and we still don't really know who won. There, there are all kinds of questions about the ballots and whether some of them disappeared or not. So, uh, look, no system is perfect. No system is perfect. Every system is potentially subject to fraud, which is why you have to pay very close attention to what's going on. And it's okay to ask those questions. But they really have been answered, and I don't think there's any giant conspiracy to steal votes, at least on the, in, in the, through, uh, through the machines. There are plenty of other schemes uh, to, uh, to produce votes that are questionable, but that isn't one of them. She's got the mic. You've got you've to convince her. Yes. In, in an election that's as close as you say this one is, what, if any, is the effect of the news media? All right. Well, when I say it's close, I mean 5248 or, or closer. You know, last time wasn't a landslide. Landslide definition is 55% plus of the two-party vote. It wasn't. Uh, it was uh, of the two-party vote. It was probably about 53.3, something like that. It wasn't close to being a landslide. Uh, but uh, this is going to be the definition of a close election is 52-48. Once you subtract out the, the uh, minor party candidates, you're going to have Gary Johnson from uh, New Mexico, former, former governor of New Mexico, two-term Republican who ran for the nomination on the, on the unusual platform of drug legalization. You know, wrong party. That, I, that would have gotten more votes on the Democratic side, I think, uh, than the Republican side. That was a joke, uh, uh, by the way. And uh, in any event, Gary Johnson's going to get some votes. And remember Ralph Nader. Ralph Nader got a tiny number of votes nationally, but elected George W. Bush. He cost Gore not just Florida, but New Hampshire. Either of those states would have elected Gore. And Nader clearly made the difference. It wasn't even a close call. So Gary Johnson draws disproportionately from Republicans. Libertarians do. Uh, what's his name? Ron Paul. I'm trying to forget him. Uh, Ron Paul was the Libertarian candidate in 1988. He got one half of 1%. In a close election, one half of 1% can be the election. Now, I'm avoiding your question, which was about the media, uh, and doing that on purpose. But look, here's my view of, of the media. Again, I look at it from the long view. We are so much luckier today than we ever have been before because of diversity in the media. 
Now, many of you grew up at the very same time I did, and we had three networks with three anchors from the very same background who reported about the same five or six stories in just about the same order every single night. That was the extent of the diversity. Of course, you had more newspapers back then, and they had more reporters. They did, I think, a more thorough job because they had the ability to do it. But you, you didn't have the kind of diversity you have today. If you're conservative, you've got Fox News. If you're liberal, you have everything else. Uh, no. You <laughs> Although I have to say, there are, there are distinctions. CBS has done a very good job of becoming more balanced. They really have. They deserve credit for that. ABC is actually as or more liberal than MSNBC. Uh, and I watch, I record all these news shows. I'm a sick person. I mean, I go through them all. I try to see what's being told to people because it affects what, what they do. But you also have the Internet. We have the Internet. This is just glorious because everybody in this room has a different news organization. You have bookmarked. 10 or 15 or 100 sites that you like, and you go to them and you collect information from them. Every single person here has a different news organization. Terrific. Terrific. So I celebrate that diversity as I do diversity in other realms. I think it's a good thing for our system, and it increases the information available to people from many different perspectives. Where, where is the lady going to pick? It's like, you know, she's the Vanna White of, of this presentation. A lot of us uh, feel that uh, Congress would perhaps be much more effective if we could possibly have term limits. Do you think there's any chance of that? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked that. I uh, did a book a few years ago called A More Perfect Constitution. It makes a marvelous holiday gift. I, for many years, I've said we ought to start gift-giving at Memorial Day, which is just right around the corner so you won't forget. Father's Day. Fathers get sick of ties. They want to be recognized for their intellectual capacity. Give them a book like a more perfect Constitution. But one of the 20, I proposed 23 changes to the Constitution uh, and, uh, you know, got, got uh, calls from, from uh, descendants of James Madison threatening my life. Uh, literally, once on NPR, got got this guy calling me up saying I'd better not ever come to his community because it'd be the last community I ever visited. And the, and the host asked for his information, gave it to the police. Anyway, uh, look, that was one of my 23. And I'm not in favor of strict term limits. I want to see them be fairly generous because of institutional memory. I do think that's important, an important element in legislatures. Uh, but I do have good news for you. It's actually going to happen, contrary to the cynicism in this room. I heard people say, no, 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 it actually is going to happen. It's on the calendar uh, for the 12th of never. It's, it's right there. You look at that date. It's there. Okay? What, do you seriously think? That's like the faculty voting to abolish tenure. And let me just state for the record that I think it's a great institution. Tenure, tenure that is, is a, is a great institution. Now, if you want to abolish it, go ahead, as long as it's a grandfather clause. You know, we're going to get personal about it. I'm just kidding, though. 
All right. Man, where, who have you selected next in the lottery? This is, this is tremendous. Okay. You know, you see on the television where they talk about the unemployment. And the Democrats always will bring up that the unemployment is getting better. It's down to 8.1%. But at the same time, depending on which news channel you listen to, they will say, well, we've taken 400,000 people off of the books because they don't even bother to look for a job anymore. How come the Republican side doesn't really ballyhoo that up to say, hey, you know, the real figure is 10.1%? Sure. Well, for one thing, they don't want to embarrass the new graduates of Virginia Tech. I mean, they can't help it. They, what can they do, really? You, you have to have some, some sympathy. You know, you really do. It, it, we all know the old joke, and I've, I've used it many times, of, you know, how can you, uh, why do uh, graduates of Virginia Tech uh, put their uh, diplomas on the backs of their pickup trucks and, of course, so they can park in handicap spaces. <laughs> this, now, this is family. This is, this is family. Ma'am, this proves my point about negative advertising because other than the jokes about Bill Clinton, this is the only thing most people are going to remember from this presentation. Show you how old, that, that was literally being passed around when I was a student in the early 1970s. So nothing, nothing has changed. And of course, I, I wish them all the best in, in other ways. And I, I hope they eventually crack the list of 100 best universities. <laughs> Tim, I've used every one of the jokes that you had on that list. Now, I've are you happy? He gave me a whole list. I said I'd try to use some of them. I've, got, I've checked off 100%. What the heck did you ask me? Oh, about, <laughs> you asked me about unemployment. You, you actually partly answered the question yourself. You knew about the fact that hundreds of thousands of people have been essentially purged from the rolls because they've gotten discouraged. How did you learn about that? I suspect that you watch Fox News or Fox Business or, and CNBC often has that uh, in their role of stories and so on. So you have picked news organizations that will give you that information, and frankly, they're news organizations that probably reflect your, your partisan identification, just as Democrats in this room probably have picked you know, NBC and MSNBC and current TV and the, and the places that reinforce your party ID. That's part of our system today. So the information is out there. The question is always, are people receptive to the information? If they're not receptive, they often don't remember it even if they hear it because it conflicts with their personal viewpoint, their, their political prism, which is internal and may be connected really to their genetic code. There's research today in political science that suggests that people are genetically predisposed toward one party or the other. I'm going to let you guess which characteristics <laughs> predispose people to one party or the other. I'm not getting into that. But... There are political scientists and geneticists who've worked together and think that there are certain places on the genetic code that may well predispose people toward one of the two major parties. Uh, so that's just the way we are as human beings, and until we have advanced genetic engineering, it isn't going to change. And we'll all be dead. Well, maybe some of you will still be alive. All right, who are you gonna, you gotta get some people on the other ends here. They're upset that they're not being picked. Okay. 
Why do uh, presidential elections seem to be so close, and why support for the two parties seem to be so evenly divided, seems to be, uh, maybe to the exclusion of a third party? You just saw a great example of this in the near collapse of Americans Elect. I don't know how many of you have followed this, but Americans Elect was backed by Peter Ackerman's millions, and he put a ton of money into it. They're already absolutely on the ballot in 27 states. They're pre-filed in a total of, I think, 35. They could have gotten on all 50 states. What were they trying to do? They were trying to nominate via Internet, having you know thousands, th millions of people participate in the nominating process, a Democrat for president, a Republican for vice president, or vice versa. They wanted a bipartisan, moderate centrist ticket to challenge the liberal Democrats and the conservative Republicans, right? Well, it just collapsed. Why? Because hardly anybody participated. They certainly advertised it enough. They got the word out. It's just that people are polarized. They have made a choice. And partisan identification is a stronger part of most of us than we admit. I always laugh when I see Gallup polls. Gallup is famous for this. They love to exaggerate the number of independents. In fact, their most current numbers suggest that there are more independents than there are either Democrats or Republicans. It's in the upper 30s. Laughable, ridiculous. They are hidden partisans. People who say they're independent, I'm sure there are a few exceptions out here because there are, in fact, 6 to 8% of Americans are real, hardcore independents. But that means 92 to 94% of Americans have a, have a Democratic or Republican partisan identity. And in that 6 to 8% independents are Greens and, and uh, Libertarians and Hottentots and Vegetarian Party members. And, you know, so, I mean, we're talking about the vast majority of Americans have picked a party. And it matters to them. And even those independent hidden partisans end up voting about as regularly for their hidden party as the people who openly profess to be Democrats or Republicans. That's the reason. It's, it's, as always, it comes down to the people. It's our choice. We have chosen, for whatever combination of reasons, to be Democrats and Republicans. Part of it's our pragmatism, and we're a very pragmatic people. It's been part of the genius of America. And that pragmatism says, why should I throw my vote away? Either the Democrat is going to win or the Republican is going to win. And I can, make a, I can make a point or I can pick a president. People choose to pick a president rather than make a point. That's what it comes down to. What else do we have? We're going to get, I think we've got time for one or two more, and we haven't gotten the people over here. Yes, yes. What do you anticipate the size of the vote to be, and how will that affect the election? Uh, the size of the vote will certainly hit 130 million, somewhere around there. It will be somewhere in the neighborhood of 60% of those age 18 and above. It was 62 to 63 in both 2004 and 2008. I don't know if we'll hit that, uh, that um, peak. Uh, it was the highest turnout since the 1968 presidential election, which was a pretty wild one, as many of us remember. Uh, we may or may not hit that 62, 63 peak. I doubt we'll go much above that. Uh, we could go to 60, 59, but it will still be a lot better than it was in 1996 and 2000 when it was uh, either 49 or 50. And also 1988 was, uh, was 50. 
50%, 49%, and 50%. The only exception was Perot brought in 55% in 1992. So we went way above even the Perot election, the Perot-Clinton-Bush election of 1992. So that's where it will be. And you ask me what effect it will have. It depends on which 130 million turn out. In 2008, it was a strongly Democratic-leaning electorate. Republicans were discouraged because of Bush and Iraq, and they didn't, didn't like McCain and, and the economic collapse. So you had much larger numbers of Democrats show up than Republicans. This year, I've been following the enthusiasm measures that many polling agencies do. The enthusiasm's about peg equal. This year, Democrats, and that's one reason I say it's going to be a close competitive election. They're about peg equal in enthusiasm. Now, the difference is, I have to say, the Democrats are enthusiastic about Obama. The Republicans are also enthusiastic about Obama <laughs> in the other direction. As I said, Romney has almost nothing to do with it. He's lucky enough to be the other name on the ballot. And luck, as I said, is such a part of life. Do we have time for, now, well, this gentleman wants to speak. I don't know. The U.S. Senate race in Virginia is very easy to summarize. It's, it's just going to go the way of the presidential election. You're going to see this all over the country because this is a polarized race with strong partisan feelings. If Romney carries Virginia, Allen will win. If Obama carries Virginia for the second time, Kane will win. Look, what Obama voter would vote for George Allen? Think about it. What Romney voter would vote for the former chairman of the DNC. It makes no sense, really. Now, I realize there are some voters who make no sense, but <laughs> I don't think there are that many of them. And so in the end, it'll be a coattail race, and you're going to see that in a lot of the states that I mentioned. That I think it's going to happen in Missouri and Montana uh, and, uh, and several other states. Okay? What else? The election in November, of course, is six months away. It, we have a very key election coming up in three weeks, which is maybe a bellwether of where the country's headed. Would you comment on the recall election of Governor Walker? Are you in from Wisconsin? I was there last year. <laughs> oh, well, you know. I, visitors count. You know, that's you spent money, I hope. They were happy to have you. Uh, look, it's close. I'm just giving you a gut feeling because the Democrat was just nominated, Tom Barrett, the very same guy I ran against uh, Walker a year and a half ago. We're, we're into the second election of the same candidates uh, for a year and a half because of the recall. My gut is that Walker will win. The incumbent governor will win. Why? Uh, because, first of all, he, he hasn't lost any of the coalition really that elected him. They supported the changes that he made on collective bargaining and so on. Second, I've noticed, uh, I have been to Wisconsin, and I, like you, and I didn't spend much money, but I was there. And uh, there, there's a little hesitation, as there should be, about recall. Uh, and by the way, I had this uh, with Schwarzenegger. A lot of you were thrilled about Schwarzenegger. I thought it was a horrible idea, not just because of Schwarzenegger, who turned out pretty much the way I expected, but also because of the idea of recall. This is no way to run a republic. The terms are short enough as it is. For, we understand this, right, at our collective ages. Four years flies by. So you mean now anytime a governor makes a controversial decision or becomes unpopular for whatever reason, we're going to have a recall election? You're going to have another election in a year and a half after the original election? No wonder nothing can get done. 
And it's, it's again, inc increasingly paralyzing and polarizing. It was in the Schwarzenegger case. It is now in the Walker case. Maybe I'm speaking as a Virginian. We don't like recall, and we don't have it. We don't like referendum and initiative, and we don't have it. We believe in a modicum of democracy, but we don't want to go too far. Uh, and that's, you know, it, it's worked out reasonably well, depending on the year and the circumstances. But I, I would guess that Walker would win. I think it'll be a close competitive election. I wouldn't be shocked if it were about the same percentages you saw last time. It was 52 to 47 with one for somebody else. I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out almost exactly the same way. How dumb. I mean, think they've been in turmoil now for months and months now. Walker should have done it differently. He, he, he went in like a bull in a china shop, and he generated a lot of this. My guess is, privately, he wished he had done it a little bit differently. Could have achieved the same policy objectives without, without causing quite this much turmoil. But I just think it's a dumb, dumb idea. I don't like recall. You've got impeachment, and you've got the legal process if somebody's a crook. That's enough. That's enough. Okay, I think we have one more quick question, right. but then it's time for lunch. Well, I just wanted to follow up on the Where are you? I'm... Oh, there you are, okay. And an earlier question about the voting. Um, I understand that absentee voting is no longer encouraged unless you absolutely have to because of the reasons it was originated for. That there is a lot of fraud with absentee, is that correct? No, uh, actually I would say the contrary. I've, I've looked at those studies and I've looked at absentee balloting for years. Again, you always have to be aware of the possibility of fraud, and one fraudulent ballot is one too many. But overall, no, I, I disagree. Our system is cleaner today than it has ever been. The reason we have so much absentee and early voting is because people want it. It increases convenience. Uh, it has become difficult in many urban areas to get to the polls. You spend you know, two hours driving there and two hours back, and people have to take time out of their day. I strongly support early voting and absentee voting, though I always tell people, do not vote before you absolutely have to, even if you have an absentee or early vote. Why? Well, do you write a review of a play after two acts when there are four acts in the play? Don't you think you might miss something? Yeah, I mean, really important things come up sometimes in the last few weeks. So if you've got an absentee ballot, hold it until the deadline. Vote it at the end so you can take into account as much of the campaign as possible. But, you know, I really, I really want to combat that, that idea that, you know, that our system is, is uh, shot through with fraud and that uh, everybody's a crook and so on. Look, I've worked in politics my entire Life. I told you I was sick, uh, you know, from age seven on. And I will put politics up against any one of your professions, any of your professions. You don't get as much public scrutiny or spotlight from the press as politicians do. It actually encourages many of them to be more careful than people in other fields who are not watched. So we need to combat this corrosive cynicism that causes people to conclude that our system is rotten. It is not rotten. It is, as Winston Churchill allegedly said and probably didn't, we have the worst possible system except for all the others. And on that note, wahoo wah. Thank you. Oh, there you are. Stuck up behind you. Nice to see you. Thank you. Larry, on behalf of uh, everyone present in this room, I want to thank you for yet another uh, wonderful presentation. Uh, 
a little entertainment in there as well. And I even uh, learned a, a few different hokey jokes. Uh, all right, I want, to I want to present you with a gift. And uh, if this turns out to be a pen, which it appears to be, be sure you read the fine print. <laughs> That's great. So well said from a lawyer. All right.